1: On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening, thanks for the ratings and reviews, thanks for the retweets, thanks for the shares, well, you know, just thanks for everything. Now, on to my guest for today, Dr. Wayne Visser, a pracademic, is a professor at Cambridge University and Antwerp Business School, and the author of 41 books. His forthcoming book is Thriving, The Breakthrough Movement to Regenerate Nature, society and the economy he's also a consultant who has worked with numerous companies and served as director of sustainability at kpmg wayne is also a published poet and shares one of his poems on the show wayne's interest in sustainability in business was sparked when he was an undergraduate in cape town and when the largest gathering of heads of state took place in rio resulting in a lot of questions and efforts around incorporating more sustainable practices into business. Wayne has since made it his mission to find ways for business to become more sustainable. In Thriving, Wayne explains, he observes that the movement for sustainability has ultimately failed. His book provides a different paradigm, thriving. Part of the problem is that the end goal of sustainability is not enough for people and businesses to get excited about. We need a bigger target than just surviving. Despite this assessment, Wayne does see a lot of positive change happening. We're now reaching a point, for example, where solar and wind energy are cheap and widely available. He also believes entrepreneurship is a key to innovation towards helping to turn the tide and make the world more environmentally sustainable. Wayne sees change is happening on multiple fronts, in the use of resources, and how something is made, in the distribution of wealth, and the need to cultivate resilience in the face of a crisis. He believes that entrepreneurship and business are best poised to lead the way to solve these problems and make a better world. Now, let's get better together. Dr. Wayne Visser, welcome to the podcast.
2: Great pleasure to be with you today.
1: Well, thank you so much. Uh, you're a pracademic <laughs> professor, poet, and a possibilist. And the coolest thing is that you're also a poet. My friend and and uh, creative coach, Mark McGinnis, will be so proud of me <laughs> to actually talk about poetry. You've actually written 41 books. Your latest book is one called Thriving, which we're going to talk a little bit about in a second. Um, But before we get into all that and just unpack who you are, as I always like to say, uh, tell us how you got to do what you're doing today.
2: Well, as with all things, it's a journey. And relating to the work that I do, it was actually when I was a student, young and uh, fresh eyed, uh, studying business in Cape Town. And it was the lead up years to the original Rio Earth Summit which took place in 1992 in Rio de Janeiro. It was and still is the largest gathering of heads of state that has ever taken place. And I, I just got interested in, in that topic. What, what is it especially that business can do uh, to turn around its legacy? Because it was already obvious then that we had some pretty big problems and that the world was recognizing those problems, and that business was probably more a part of the problem than the solution. And so I ended up going to a conference in Japan with an organization called ISEC, where it was the young people putting together their voice as input to this global conference. So that was what got me started. And then since then, I've really just had a career where I've in various capacities, worked with business, either as a consultant through KPMG, Capgemini, or as an academic with Cambridge University, Antwerp Management School and others. Uh, just trying to figure this out, you know, how do we turn business from being the villain into being the hero?
1: And that's specifically around sustainability, what they call now ESG, I think, is the is the Proper term? I, I get confused because there's like sustainability, well, this, that. That's, what's the...
2: That's part of the problem, right? right, so right. I, I mean, the movement that kicked off uh, in 1987, really, with the definition of sustainable development by the United Nations uh, and that conference in 1992, we could call the sustainability movement. Although, you know, the first Earth Day was 1970. The first UN conference on environment and development was 1972. Um, So it's been going a while, but it's become framed as the sustainable development or sustainability movement. And, you know, it's had uh, things like corporate social responsibility come in there. Now, as you rightly said, we've got the labeling of ESG. It's not actually quite the same thing, ESG environment, social governance, is really the way that the financial industry is grappling with sustainability, mainly as a reporting framework. Um, and what I do in the in the latest book, having spent now more than 30 years working in sustainability, is to say it's basically failed. Uh, it's, it's not working, it's boring, uh, and it's still not well understood. Hmm. And that's why I call for thriving, Hmm. which I think is different.
1: So interesting because there is so much, I mean, people are spending, I mean, oodles and oodles of money on this. And to say that it's failed is, I mean, super interesting, (laughs) bold statement. But I mean, you know, of course. Well, you just have to look at the facts. If you look at the science,
2: if, if you look at the trends, so. I always say, what's the justification for that statement? Um, If you go to a doctor, you judge the success of that doctor by whether you get well or you get sick. And if we look at the state of the world, on many, many issues that we've been trying to solve through sustainable development, such as climate change, such as biodiversity loss, such as income inequality, gender inequality, Corruption, uh, I could go on and on. All of these have actually got worse over the last 30 plus years, not through lack of effort. Uh, so there is this whole movement, this whole profession actually on sustainability. We now have 17 sustainable development goals, but the way that we're going about it simply isn't turning the tide. It's not uh, shifting the Titanic, if you'd like. And so we really have to question. The the goal actually, and thriving is I think different in the sense that, firstly, it's something everyone can understand. If I say to you, "What do you say to your fiance?" I believe, for when you wake up in the morning, uh, let's have a sustainable relationship, darling. <laughs> no, you don't, right? No. But if if I said to you, "Would you like your relationship to thrive?" You would immediately know what that means. And it's the same for business, it's the same for economies, for communities, for countries. So immediately we know that to thrive is something qualitatively different. To sustain is simply to endure, to continue, to survive. And that's really not a great target for humanity, just to survive. It's like saying, well, I I just want to breathe. You know, yes, I have to breathe, but that's not the purpose of my life. So... We have to aim higher. We have to be more ambitious, and thriving frames all of the problems and the solutions in terms of getting to what others call net positive. There's a book by Paul Polman, former CEO of Unilever, and Andrew Winston called Net Positive, and uh, others call regeneration. It's a great book by Paul Hawken on that, and it's basically the same idea. How do we make sure that because of us existing as individuals as businesses as governments the world really is better off than if we hadn't existed and we have to look at ourselves honestly in the mirror and and face up to the fact that on many issues and especially on environmental issues that's not the
1: case at the moment yeah good point certainly seems to be getting worse and worse without any real plan i mean People well, have plans. That's not true. That's okay. not true. I okay. mean, there are
2: many plans, right? Sustainable right. development goals are a plan for the for the planet, really. Seventeen of them, and and actually, what I've seen over the last thirty years is that we are doing more than ever before. Uh, there is a massive movement that's been accumulating. So, the question really is: uh, Is the change happening? If it's happening, is it happening fast enough so that the system Meaning, society, nature, and so on, won't break down before it breaks through. And by breakthrough, of course, I mean will it, Will we enter a more healthy state? Uh, will we regenerate nature uh, and revitalize society and and the economy? So, and I'm actually quite optimistic on that. I, I think there are largely due to innovation, which is why I'm delighted to be on a podcast like this. Due to entrepreneurship and innovation we actually are seeing many solutions being put forward and many starting to scale so that on many issues i think we're reaching or have reached a tipping point of positive change
1: on which issues do you think we've reached the tipping point
2: well certainly and this might be strange to say as we go through the russia ukraine conflict and high oil prices and oil and gas companies making so much money but on the whole clean tech scene, I, I think we've reached that tipping point already. You know, um, In terms of technology, solar, wind, and batteries have all had plummeting prices, more than 90% reductions in the last 10 years. That's being um, uh, enhanced by work around artificial intelligence that's going to bring us autonomous cars. So electric vehicles are happening far quicker than people expect. Uh, And the whole clean energy revolution, despite and actually because of what's happening in Russia now, will happen faster. A lot of people just think everyone's rushing to get more oil and gas now, which in the short term appears to be the case. Of course, they're looking for a substitute. It's not that we're suddenly consuming more. Uh, But actually, in Europe, for example, 19 countries have increased their ambitions on renewable energy. So they're going to get more renewable energy much faster than if the Russia war hadn't happened.
1: No, totally. I mean, I think it just shows your vulnerability. You know, I mean, I think it was the, I think I read an article about Germany. So Germany buys a lot of gas from Russia, like natural gas. They were going to decommission all their nuclear power plants because for whatever reason, right? Well, you know, kind of not a very sustainable plan for your sovereignty if you're dependent on a fossil fuel that could be cut off at any time, right? This yeah. is like, it's clearly, yeah. you're not planning for the catastrophic, and it happens, right? The quote-unquote black swan event, boom, now what do you do? I, exactly. I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I I think you just got... So this is the thing that I've always been fascinated by. People complain about the cost of solar the cost of renewables, but when you're in a situation like we're in now... it. it It instantly pays for itself. (laughs) Yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah. I mean, already before the crisis in in Russia and Ukraine, solar and wind was in almost every country the cheapest form of new electricity. I mean, much cheaper than oil and gas, cheaper than coal for sure, cheaper than nuclear. And now there are political reasons why countries will still go for those. Uh, People complain a lot about China because China is still building coal-fired power stations, and they have a massive energy demand. But actually, they're building enough renewables, solar and wind, to be the equivalent of one coal-fired power station every week. So the scaling is happening very, very fast. Uh, It's a little bit like an old dirty locomotive chugging up a hill. And it's, it might still be ahead, but there's this super fast electric train that's further behind but it's going like lightning and the question is just when is that going to overtake this locomotive that's stalling
1: yeah i agree i mean i know there's a lot of angst right now especially you know i'm in california san francisco bay area price of gas gallon is like i know in the uk i, you, I shouldn't complain but it's like 650 sometimes 7 dollars a gallon where not even six months ago, it was more like four, four and a half, right? And so it's a shock to the system, but then you realize, oh, you know, as we, you know, it's more and more important to make the transition to these more renewable, sustainable, net positive type things, because just imagine if we were just all electric, we wouldn't care about the price of oil. I actually wouldn't care.
2: Well, I I happen to be... Almost in that situation, in the in the sense that I was an early adopter of Tesla, and so we've had our our Model S for more than six years now. I'm still on the contract where I get free charging for life. Oh, cool! So I'm not even thinking about what the oil price is, and of course, that that's a pretty brutal thing to say when others are suffering. But it does illustrate the point that you know many times renewables have been accused of being unreliable or intermittent you know the sun doesn't always shine the wind doesn't always blow by the way we have batteries now but <laughs> uh, but exactly. but when was oil and gas ever stable right oil and gas is up and down and we, we see wars fought over it and now we see what's happening uh, and you know to illustrate the point further of how this could be a catalyst I remember going when I was that young bright-eyed student uh, going to to Japan for that conference. And we visited uh, the headquarters of Toyota in Nagoya. And they showed us their R&D kind of showcase section. And there were all these uh, engines that ran on everything but oil and gas. So, And it was amazing. And I was like, why don't we see these in the market? And they said, well, actually, we innovated all of this stuff after the 1973 and 1979 oil shocks, which was a price hike due to OPEC. Mm -hmm. And so this creates a signal for innovation. Now, what happened was the oil price came down and they put all of that back on the shelf. Yep. But I think with the confluence of things happening, the oil price is not going to go down suddenly. It was going up anyway. There is a huge carbon bubble which is about to burst, anyway, and you know the alternatives are getting so much cheaper, and we've got climate change which is going to get worse before it gets better. So all the pressure is on. So I think this is an absolute fertile seedbed for innovation.
1: Oh, agreed. I remember when I was a kid in the seventies, and the oil embargo and the gas lines and the price went up. And I mean, it was like. It feels very much now like a back then, um, <clears throat> although we didn't really have much alternatives, uh, obviously. But, you know, like diesel, as an example, a diesel engine was originally made to run off of like, I think it was like vegetable oil or some some crazy, I don't remember, but it was like, no, no, we don't need to run this on this dirty diesel. We can run it on mm-hmm. distillants from like, basically, if you make soap, <laughs> the, uh, the byproducts, there's soap and then there's this thing you can run a diesel engine. So I'm like, never knew this, but I, I agree with you. I I think just like any kind of innovation and entrepreneurship and looking at markets, I think it's already tipped. I, 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 you cannot be a rational, reasonable government person and not be like, how do I not get impacted by this? It's, it's insane. Like,
2: yeah. And I think it's because we've shown that it's not a fad. It's not a thing that hippies do. Uh, It is actually a huge business opportunity if you can make this transition. And, you know, Tesla was, as I'm sure you know, the most shorted stock ever, everyone hoping that it was going to fail, betting that it's going to fail. And it became the sixth trillion-dollar company making yeah. less than 1% of the world's cars and, uh, you know, valued more than all the other automakers. That's simply because the market actually understands that this is the transition we have to make, and here's somebody, uh, a company, who who is just uh, giving us the solution and showing that it's possible, Um Now, so I I do think that one is tipped, that whole energy nexus, uh, although it may not feel like it right now, I I think that's reached a tipping point already. You know, the International Energy Agency, every prediction they've ever made on renewable energy has been wrong. I mean, it's been a vast underestimate. They keep having to revise how quickly it's changing. Um, The one that hasn't tipped yet, but I think will uh, and will have to, is food, Mm. because we actually can't solve the climate crisis without completely changing our agricultural system. Uh, The way that we do farming today is incredibly destructive. You know, there are already on record uh, some predictions that we may only have, I think it's 60 harvests left because we're basically just depleting the soil of any life and we're just putting chemicals in there. And so there is a whole movement around regenerative agriculture, which is gaining some momentum and lots of exciting entrepreneurship going in there. It's linked as well to what we eat and how we produce what we eat. Because again, if you look at our our meat-based diets, this takes vast amounts of land, of water, produces huge amounts of carbon you know, that actually takes 60% of the land while only creating uh, 2% of the protein that we consume. So this is very inefficient, uh, but also just cannot continue if we're going to get anywhere close to the climate targets that we have. So you do get innovation in the form of, let's say, beyond meat or impossible foods that is really scaling fast. But then you get the other... um, breakthrough that is earlier on, but I think will also transform that system, which is uh, the cultivated meat scene, where we we literally grow meat from cells in a vat. And that's already available in Singapore, you can buy cultivated chicken in a restaurant there. But you know, again, the the resource inputs, much like the plant based meat, are, you know, sort of 80 90% below what uh, ordinary uh, livestock produces. So I think these are going to really disrupt that market.
1: Yeah. And also I remember looking at stuff like vertical farming and, you know, using uh, aquaponics as opposed to, I mean, there's, of course, you can't grow everything that way, but there was a startup called, I think it was about when a Bowery, I think it was in New York. Where they were taking old uh, manufacturing, like old shells of business, uh, buildings, like old ones in the industrial part of town, building a vertical farm yeah. in New York, and you could grow. They were mostly growing lettuce and leafy greens, yeah, constantly. Like, how many do you need? And it was all aquaponic, super efficient. You use ninety percent less water, and they could be like they could meet demand, right? Like because it was like an eight nine week growing cycle, so they can they can adjust it as opposed to in the ground. I mean, you know, it's crazy. And it
2: makes us more resilient, which is is so important these days because it's good to be globally interconnected, but we've seen how vulnerable that makes us as well. So vital um, things like food, you know, we want to be able to produce locally or to have at least alternative options available, such as vertical farming. It's just one of the solutions, but there are others.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's the resiliency and the like failover, right? I mean, I have an engineering degree, so I'm always all about systems failing. Like, what are what's redundant, right? And, you know, in capitalism today, they reduce redundancy and eliminate redundancy to increase efficiency and profit. Okay, fine. But you are vulnerable to a catastrophic event like that one ship in the Suez Canal. (laughs) One ship block thirty percent of the world shipping in a in a canal, the size of my apartment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not sustainable. This is stupid. Um, yeah. So I find it really fascinating. And so it's
2: because we 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 don't think like nature thinks, yeah. or yeah. we don't design like nature designs. Nature is not actually very efficient. There there yeah. is a lot of spare capacity in nature, a lot of abundance, overproduction. And uh, in our quest for that singular goal of efficiency driven by maximizing profits, we've been pretty dumb, actually, because we've made the system very brittle. And we've learned that in in recent years. I mean, also look at the microchip uh, crisis and and it just manifests in lots of different ways. And this is why we need to redesign the system. And it is happening. Uh, We just have to give it as much support so that it uh, starts to scale. Because like the vertical farming as the example, this is not such a new idea. I visited vertical farms in, in Berlin, for example. They're great, but they're small scale. Yeah. And what we need now to, to match the scale and the urgency of the problems are large scale solutions, things that can scale very quickly. And we're starting to see it, but we need much more of it.
1: Yeah, no, it's so true. So true. It's just amazing. <laughs> so tell, tell me a little bit about the book thriving. I, I know we talked about, of course, thriving is greater than sustainability, but kind of what are, what are some of the tenets of it? Like, how, how are you going about getting the word out? I like the idea because
2: yeah.
1: um, there's a healthcare system here in Northern California called Kaiser, pretty much a massive healthcare system in the entire U S and their, uh, their, their slogans thrive. They're they're not about you know you can say whatever you will about their you know but it, the yeah, slogans yeah. thrive. <laughs> yep.
2: Yeah. No, in fact, uh, strangely enough, I I used them as a benchmark in some research recently oh, for, uh, for a, a healthcare company in Malaysia. But um, so what's it about? Really, what what it explores are six major transitions, great transitions we have to make in nature, society, and the economy to turn breakdowns into breakthroughs. So I'll I'll try and give you the whistle-stop tour. Um, In nature, we've got to go from the breakdown of degradation of ecosystems to restoration of ecosystems, protecting and restoring them. We've also got to go from the depletion of resources to the renewal of resources, especially through the circular economy where we recycle constantly everything. Then in society, we've got to go from disparity, which is all the inequality we see, to responsibility, where we have a fair and just system. Uh, And that's through an access economy because it's all about giving access to opportunities. We've also got to go from disease to revitalization of health and well-being. And this is not only about communicable diseases like COVID, which, of course, is very much front and center now. But in fact, still 70% of people die from non-communicable diseases like heart heart disease, strokes, cancers and diabetes, which are lifestyle related diseases. 40% are preventable. Uh, So it depends whether you smoke, of course. It depends whether you're living in a polluted city whether you're eating eating food that's full of chemicals, it depends, uh, you know, whether you're eating a lot of meat, red meat especially or not. So, you know, we can make that transition and there's lots of great innovation happening there as well. And then the, the fifth transition is to go from disconnection, which is the unequal access to technology, sometimes called the digital divide, to rewiring through a digital economy. And what this means is using all of these great technologies, whether that's artificial intelligence or blockchain or, you know, uh, um, big data, 3D printing, to solve our biggest social and environmental problems. And then the last transition, which is, you know, so relevant today is to go from disruption, which is all about the crises, to resilience, where we can actually manage our way through those crises and come out the other end uh, and not only survive, but thrive. So the book explores those transitions, uh, just using hundreds of examples of innovations that are happening in those spaces, which makes it incredibly exciting. Uh, the second thing it tries to do is just distill down some underlying scientific principles behind thriving. These are really the principles of complex living systems. Um, they're things like complexity creativity, circularity, coherence, uh, convergence, and uh, continuity. And we might touch on some of those if we have time, but you know, these are tests we can use for whether we're moving towards thriving or not. And then I do a bit on how you actually practice thriving. How do you integrate thriving into organizations uh, there's six steps to that, and then I also deal with leadership. What kind of leaders do we need to bring about this thriving? So that's basically it.
1: Huh. Wow, sounds like you thought about it. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: A little bit it took me
1: about ten years in the oh. incubation. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And so, uh, so for entrepreneurs, I mean, what what kind of questions should they ask themselves about this thriving? I mean, I think. Generally, entrepreneurs are pretty good at some of these things, but we tend to get pretty down in the kind of down in the depths of our own little private world. Um, and sounds like. Expanding our horizon and sort of looking at it from a, you know, yeah. systems point of view. I, I'm not sure exactly. I'd love your thoughts on this, because I do think entrepreneurship can be the driver of change for this? Because I think that's really the only kind of mechanism that actually brings about these things. I mean, you gave some great examples, right, of yeah. entrepreneurs like kickstarting the revolution almost.
2: Yes. Yeah, so the questions I think entrepreneurs have to ask themselves today, firstly, it's what is the big problem I'm solving? And it's no longer enough for it to be – A problem that's just going to make customers happy and make me a lot of money. I mean, the problem has to be a societal problem, an environmental problem, you know, because these are the biggest challenges, but also the biggest opportunities. And most crucially, that gives the entrepreneur a sense of purpose, a very clear North Star, which attracts all of the talent that they need the best talent and enables people to join them almost as a movement rather than just because they're making cool stuff. So that's, I would say, the first thing. The second thing is that systems perspective you were alluding to, which is to say, if I'm designing a solution, could it be a solution that not only turns one of these breakdowns into breakthroughs, but has elements of more than one, maybe even all six. So can I think, for example, of a health solution that uses technology, but also addresses health injustice or inequality, and by the way, is circular, so it's zero waste, and is done in a way that I also protect and restore uh, nature. You know, it's that kind of thinking that will get us to scale these things because what happens then is it ripples through all of those systems and we get these positive reinforcements and tipping points. So I think the, the, the summary word for that is synergy. Look for the synergies and make sure that you're not just solving one thing, but that you're solving multiple things through your solution. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, the question that uh, entrepreneurs have to ask themselves is, you know, will I be on the right side of history? You know, the, the history is littered with barons and tycoons who made plenty of money, had lovely, comfortable lives. But to be honest, we, we want to forget them. Uh, we often want to pull down their statues because really they were extractive and what we want is the opposite of extractive entrepreneurs now we want entrepreneurs that really are regenerative that actually right. bring something to society and leave a positive legacy.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I like that last one a lot. Extractive versus regenerative. You know, cuz I think I mean part of the reason I do this podcast is to give back and kind of have these conversations about really what's the ethos of being an entrepreneur and it's got to be a higher I always think of it as the higher good right there's the ethics and then there's the ethos and the ethos is always to me I'm shooting for the top of the top right and I think that that is like one of the things that can get lost in the especially venture-backed startups that are all about the growth hack and the pour money into some silly company or whatever you know (laughs) so um stuff like that can be very um very challenging. I think when you have different um, competing norms, I guess would be the word. And and it is, it is nice to see that some folks are trying to get more like in a bigger system and how things work. And, you know, How, how do you think we can make that happen? I mean, is there, are there just things we can do? I mean, these questions are important, but like just simple actions we can take.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's to distill it down to what are the systems that most need changing and then to pick the ones that you're going to really focus on. So we know we've talked about already the food system has to change. So we can make that change as individuals, choosing for more plant-based diets, for example, uh, or as entrepreneurs, we can bring a solution to that, Um you know, whether that's, uh, you know, the more nutritious food made from food waste, you know, a third of the world's food is wasted right now. So there are all kinds of solutions there. The second has to be, how do we get around, you know, what's the transport system? Because that's still incredibly inefficient and damaging. And of course, electric vehicles are on the rise, but they're not the only solution. And so now we see, we have seen, right, the rise of electric scooters, for example, you know, is a great new new solution. But there are plenty more sharing schemes um, that can really be elegant solutions there. So how do we get around? And that may be at the technical high end, like how do we get to electric planes? We have them already actually for short haul. But, you know, hybrid fuel cells for electric planes, yeah. um, biofuels, hydrogen, green hydrogen is a massive boom area right now because it will yeah. solve a lot of the hard to decarbonize industries like, you know, steel, cement, mm-hmm. uh, shipping, and so on. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole thing there. Uh, and then uh, the energy one is is the obvious one. Perhaps we've talked about that enough, but how do where do we get our energy? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think there's one around um, perhaps a bit more generic, but how do we make our stuff? And so there are so many solutions in circular economy now the world at the moment is a linear economy: take, make, waste. And less than ten percent of what we make today goes back into the production cycle or back harmlessly to nature. So we have ninety percent of opportunity there, and we need it desperately. And some big companies like IKEA are taking it very seriously. Uh, and uh, you know, there's just lots of opportunities there. I know entrepreneurs who are working, for example, on how do we make plastic fully recyclable, bio-based, but also uh, with artificial DNA injected in it so that we can use blockchain and scan it and just see exactly where it came from, what it consists of, and how Crazy. we recycle it. I mean, lots of exciting
1: stuff. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I'm I'm looking into building a Earthship. Have you ever heard of Earthships? You know what they are? Um No. There's this guy in Taos, New Mexico uh, named Michael Reynolds, architect been doing these Earthship things for the better part of 50 years. And basically they use re- tires to build the wall. They stuff them full of dirt. They bury it in the ground. So it's a passive, you know, or part of the earth. It's passive hmm. heating and cooling. So, I mean, all these like things that are like kind of wacky granola. Right. But I'm just so fascinated by this because as an example, air conditioning, right? You know, if you dig down far enough in the earth, it's not that far. The temperature is pretty constant, mm. <laughs> you know? So I have always been fascinated by this because, like, why would I spend all this money on air conditioning when I could build a passive, you know, thermodynamic based on the laws of thermodynamics yeah. and I wouldn't have yeah. to worry, right? And I just, it blows my mind every time. Like, that's one thing you could do that's not that hard. Yeah. People yeah, in fact, yeah it's exactly
2: how, how how we do buildings is is insane. is insane so much uh improvement we can make there and we know how to do it we know what to do we can make buildings that are energy positive that are even water positive so the water that falls on the roof ends up going through a recycling system and coming out cleaner on the other side you know uh there are some great Certifications now, the ones called Well Building Standards, Mm -hmm. Uh, the other ones called uh, Living Building Challenge. Mm -hmm. We could just be so much smarter. And again, this is where innovation comes in. So, you know, one of the problems with building, of course, is that we do use a lot of um, energy to produce cement and bricks, especially. Now we have this fantastic trend called biofabrication, basically making stuff working with nature. So there's a, there's a company called Biomason that already does this and they basically grow bricks. You could think of it like that or <laughs> grow tiles and they grow them from bacteria. Great. Now the fantastic thing is they're lighter than the other materials. They're more durable and they grown at ambient temperatures. Yeah. So none of this high furnace temperature will yeah. need loads of energy. And that's just one example. I mean, you get uh, uh, Colorophic, uh, which is uh, a Cambridge uh, spin-out here in the UK that works with bacteria and actually finds the, finds the genes that produce color and just injects them into bacteria. So now the bacteria themselves grow colors. So we have no longer the need for artificial chemical dye. dyes. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: You know, and and the dye industry, the clothing industry, the second largest polluter uh, of yeah. all sectors. So we have the solutions, uh, and it's just a case of spotting them, you know, and then scaling them.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, agreed. Like there's a there's a company I know about. They make hemp creep, like hemp in concrete. Mm-hmm. And then there's this big movement to build dome houses where you spray it in with shotcrete or whatever they call it. Still concrete, but you know other ones with building these little blocks that you could build like Legos. Mm-hmm. And I'm just looking at all this stuff, I go, it's all doable. Like there's no there's the only thing in the way, I think is to your point, how do you scale it up? But also, I just think it's attitude, right. Oh, we've done it this way forever. Why would I want to change? And you're like, hold on. If I could build a, a house or a building that's net positive, can, you know, generates energy, is completely in 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 synchronicity with the earth around it, I don't have to waste any money. Don't have to waste any you know thing doing it. Mm. Why wouldn't I?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is that inertia barrier we have to overcome, and mm. it's one of the reasons why all of these solutions have to be at least as convenient, at least as high quality, and not much more expensive. Otherwise, you just got a barrier where people won't go for it. And if you take the example of lighting, so we've moved mostly to LED lighting around the world. Well, there's a great reason for that because they're 10 times more efficient and they last 10 times longer. So it's a very clear business case there. But still, it took, you know, Major campaigns to convince people because the cost that you save is over a period might cost a little bit more up front yeah. that you know this is smart behavior so we just have to help people to to make that switch and uh, cool. yeah that's part of it it's it's education
1: yeah I agree I agree um, how about a poem? Sure. Well, as, as you introduced
2: me uh, as a poet, uh, I, I think I have the obligation now. <laughs> I thought I'd, I thought I'd, uh, I'd share uh, one that is related to, uh, to innovation and entrepreneurship, at least I hope uh, you think so. Cool. And it's called It's Time. It's time to redesign, to reconceive the world we leave for those who follow in our wake for each child's sake. It's time to spark and innovate, to syncopate with new ideas beyond the fears of failures past at last. It's time to rise with fire burning in our eyes and change our ways to giving for life and for the living. It's time to realign, to reassess the mess we make when what we take is more than need, is greed. It's time to halt life's slow decline, the heinous crime of ecocide, the plastic tide, the skies of smoke that choke. It's time to heal the dying soil, to ease the workers' toil, and make new waves of daring with love and with great caring. Yes, it's time to redefine, to resurrect the hope that springs with wings of acting boldly now, with minds that beam. It's time to dream the future's green, to reinvent our fate, to help the earth regenerate. Where waste is food renewed, it's time to turn from death, to take a breath, start afresh, and make a mighty pivot for life and all who live it.
1: Wow. That's an awesome place to end. That was beautiful. Thank you so much, Wayne, for your time. So inspiring, so educational, boy, I am. I'm hopeful. I am definitely hopeful for the future. I think we're gonna. It's gonna come faster than we think.
2: Absolutely, and and I write quite a lot about that in the book as well. Hope is a precious commodity right now, but it is. It's an attitude and it's an action. It's it's not a it's not a wish and a prayer. You know, there's a wonderful quote by um, Rebecca Solnit who who wrote uh, Hope in the Dark. And uh, she, I'll, I'll read the quote to you because it's just fantastic. She says, hope is not a lottery ticket. You can sit on the sofa and clutch feeling lucky. It is an axe you break down doors with in an emergency. Hope should shove you out the door because it takes everything you have to steer the future away from endless war, the annihilation of the Earth's treasures and the grinding down of the poor and marginal to hope is to give yourself to the future. And that commitment to the future is what makes the present inhabitable.
1: Yeah, she's great. I actually met her once. And uh, wonderful, wonderful. So again, Wayne, thank you so much for all your time. And uh, stay it's safe. Been a great,
2: great pleasure. And uh, I look forward to connecting with your listeners. And uh, a little shout out that I have a thriving podcast as well. So, hopefully, some people will tune in there besides the book, which is available as a hardback, an audio book, or an ebook. So, thanks very much for having me. You're welcome.
1: Thanks, Wayne, for being on the show and the awesome poem. <laughs> like I said before, not a huge fan of poetry, but it's growing on me. So, now, as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my awesome interview with Wayne. It's no longer enough to make customers happy and make money, says Wayne. Strive to be part of a solution to a bigger problem. When developing your product or service, consider the impact environmentally and socially and how you can build a company that can not only survive but also make things better. And I love this idea of thriving as opposed to just surviving. Uh, You know, People need a broader mission, vision. They need to be, you know, excited about the future. So when you are developing your product or service, you know, ask, why am I doing this? And of course, there's the external reasons, fame, fortune, prestige, money, whatever. But what's the internal reason? What gets you up in the morning? You could spend your time on anything. What's the reason why I actually want to do this? I think if you answer that and it's of a broader societal importance, then you have a better chance of surviving and thriving. Wayne recommends looking at the various systems that need changing, then focusing on one or two areas to make improvements. Yeah, I mean, it can be overwhelming. I mean, we see all these things. I mean, the doom and gloom in media, it's just it's just nutty, right? Just so nutty. So you can't tackle it all. So the best thing to do is ask yourself, what can you tackle? What are the one or two things, as he mentioned, that I can actually change? Or maybe even the one thing to start with. What is the one thing I can change by doing this business? And then again, right, you know, we're in the business to make money. We're entrepreneurs for a reason. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with making money. But you got to have a bigger vision, bigger goal. There has to be an impact on society where you're going to make it thrive better. I I think if you have that sort of North Star, uh, your chances of success are a lot better. For a solution to take hold, it must be convenient, affordable, And high quality, right? Higher quality than the current solutions. And yeah, I mean, I think there's some statistics about you have to have 10x more value. I, I don't know. I mean, it varies, right? Just being better, faster, cheaper, not necessarily the best way to go. You have to add value to the customer, to add value to the world. And I think that shows through your brand has to have some sort of personality that connects this solution to make it easier, right? So ask yourself the uh, obvious questions. Does this make things better, faster, cheaper, right? That's always the performance aspect, right? We talk about performance, but also what are some of the maybe secondary goals? Now, again, you can't really focus on those a lot because again, the initial buying process is going to be you know, customers looking to solve a problem. So you also ask yourself, what problem am I solving better than other people? And it may not be better right away, or maybe not as, you know, maybe just be incremental, but something to definitely ask yourself. So there you have it. The actionable insights I learned from my awesome interview with Wayne. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits